This is what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for that welcoming introduction. And uh, I can say on behalf of Sovereign Grace Church, greetings to you. Uh, It was an immense blessing to us to host you in our building, which we just moved into in early 2020. It was a building that largely sat empty uh, for many years uh, as the church that built it was slowly dwindling, and uh, to see the building now used uh, frequently throughout the week and throughout that period We had Sunday morning services, and then another church was meeting in the afternoons, and then you guys were meeting in the evenings. It was a huge blessing to the community up there. So I am am thrilled to be here this morning. In fact, after Steve called me and asked if I would come in and fill in on an emergency basis, he called me about 30 seconds later and said, oh, wait a second, Paul Martin actually called someone else, and that other person is available. I said, hey, wait a sec, this this is, I got dibs, all right? I got dibs on this, so I I really wanted to insist on being here. Um, We've enjoyed a wonderful relationship with GFC uh, behind the scenes and publicly throughout the years, uh, increasingly uh, through Linda's work with the Pregnancy Care Center, amazing ministry. And uh, it, is, it is a privilege to partner with ministries like that um, as uh, we can do more together. And uh, I think that we've seen the fruit of that over the years. I'm uh, thankful in some ways that Pastor Paul is not here. Uh, every time I'm around him, I re- I'm reminded of how short I am. I don't know how you Asians deal with that, 
But Pastor Steve was telling me about the pulpit here, and I could just imagine myself taking a couple minutes to lower this pulpit uh, to accommodate my, my lack in height. But uh, I'm glad that I get to be here and share a pulpit with Steve, who is a uh, uh, fellow struggler in height. <laughs> well, please pray with me as we quiet our hearts and approach the throne of God's grace. Father, as we open up your word, we want to submit ourselves to your authority, recognizing that this contains no mere words of man, but the very words of God, which have the power to cut through our hearts and to point us to the glories of the cross. I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish that for which you have purposed it, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you are aware, we are in Hebrews chapter 3 today. The entire chapter was read earlier in the service. We'll be looking specifically at verses 12 to 19. When Pastor Steve called me earlier this week, he told me that you recently began a new series on delighting in God. One of the central parts of your mission statement, as I saw uh, on your bulletin. And this is a wonderful topic, and it is an essential topic. It is a countercultural topic, you could say, in a time when churches are a little bit more focused on pragmatic solutions rather than on theological beauty. There is nothing more important, however, than remembering who God is in His essential nature and character and knowing that all that we need is found in a greater revelation of Him. As Pastor Steve and I talked, uh, working through what I could potentially preach today, uh, we got to the topic of potentially addressing something that is a barrier to us delighting in God. You can hear rich theology, you can hear the bold preaching of the gospel, but if your heart is in the wrong place, it'll skim off the surface rather than leaving an impression. And so, at Sovereign Grace, we are currently going through a series on the book of Hebrews, which if you've read that before, uh, you will know that it is primarily about the challenge and necessity of enduring in our faith to the end. And the solution that the author of Hebrews provides to us is that endurance comes from an exalted view of the glorious Christ. All of us know, however, people who once professed faith in Christ and do so no longer. All of us know people who have become lukewarm, those who have perhaps started with zeal, with passion, with arms raised in worship, with daily Bible reading, have now given in to the poles of the world. All of us have experienced seasons in our own lives of discouragement and doubt. The book of Hebrews helps us understand why. And it shows us that one of the leading causes of a failure to endure and a failure to delight in God is what the Bible calls a hardened heart, 
a hardened heart. One of the things we learn when we're young is the importance of keeping our physical hearts healthy. If you're like me, going through jump rope for heart, you learn about the necessity of keeping your heart healthy. You exercise regularly, you eat healthy food, you sleep well, you don't smoke, etc. Because we know, we're taught from an early age that if we don't take care of our hearts, it could kill us. A heart attack is deadly. It could come upon you suddenly and without notice. And as I've read more about keeping your hearts healthy, I've learned that one of the major causes of heart attacks is a condition called atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis. This occurs when your arteries become so clogged with fatty deposits called plaque that the blood is, finds it more difficult to flow to your heart, and your heart becomes deprived of oxygen. And over time, the arteries actually lose their elasticity and be, become stiff, and your heart literally becomes hardened. The dangerous thing about this condition is that you don't become aware of it until it results in a dramatic major event like a heart attack. It is a slow, progressive condition that develops without detection until it is almost too late. But if it is detected, it becomes imperative to treat it immediately. You may be prescribed with medication, surgery may be required in some cases, but the most effective treatment is a change in lifestyle. Our text today is going to help us understand the kind of lifestyle that will keep our spiritual hearts healthy, to keep our spiritual hearts from becoming hardened. The Bible uses the heart as a picture of the center of one's being, your, your emotions, your reason, your will. They all flow from what is in your heart, from the condition of your heart. If your heart is healthy, then the rest of your life will be healthy as well. But if your heart becomes hardened and is left without treatment, then it's only a matter of time before a dramatic, major event happens in your life that affects your well-being both in this life and potentially in the life to come. And so the title of this sermon is simply, Guarding Your Heart. You'll see in your bulletin, we have three points today. We're going to approach this somewhat medically. First, the symptoms of a hardened heart. Second, the cause of a hardened heart. And third, the remedy to a hardened heart. Speaking with our first point, the symptoms of a hardened heart. We're actually going to begin our examination of this text in verse 7. This begins with a lengthy quotation from Psalm 95. You may be familiar with this psalm because it is often used as a call to worship to begin a worship service. And notice first how the author introduces Psalm 95 in verse 7. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. The author of Hebrews is very aware that behind the voice of the psalmist lies the voice of the Holy Spirit himself. He is aware that these are not just the words of men, as I prayed earlier before we began this sermon. They were the words of God himself, and therefore, they have enduring relevance, power, and authority for every generation. Psalm 95 actually begins with an exuberant call to worship. Verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Perhaps words that you've heard before. 
But following the call to worship is a word of warning. And that warning is quoted in verses 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is an important lesson for us every time we gather together for worship. We need to be aware that even as God summons us into his presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him, to delight in him, we are to not approach that moment passively. We don't just show up. We don't just listen as if this is information that we need to receive into our minds. We need to be very aware of the possibility that our hearts can become hardened. We have to guard our hearts even as we approach the throne of grace, remembering that the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this text is going to help us to do that. Over and over again, it warns us about the state of our hearts. Verses 8 and 15, quoting Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13, none of you may be hardened, that is, hardened in your heart, by the deceitfulness of sin. So, the question is, how do we know that our hearts are becoming hardened? What, what you could say, are the symptoms? What do we need to look out for as the outflowing of a hardened heart so that we can properly diagnose this condition? And I mean, this isn't an easy task because the heart is unseen. We, we can't see the heart just like we can't see our physical hearts. The, the, the symptoms aren't always obvious. And that was the case in the events described in Psalm 95. It's a reference to Israel in the wilderness going astray in their hearts, and yet when you think about what their outward actions looked like, it wasn't obvious that their hearts were hardening. They weren't worshiping idols, not at the time. They weren't abandoning God's commandments, not explicitly. And yet the Lord says in verse 10 that they always go astray in their heart. They abandoned God in their inner hearts long before they abandoned God in their outward actions. Our text today gives us three main symptoms of a hardened heart. And I think we'll be surprised by some of them. And I think many of us, if we listen, if we do not harden our hearts, we'll be aware that perhaps some of these conditions can be found in our own hearts. The first one is the most obvious, and it's found in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. A heart can become so hardened that it leads you to fall away from the living God. This is what we call apostasy, where someone who once professes faith in Christ does so no longer. They're no longer seeking God, no longer submitting to His Word, no longer in fellowship with God's people. You could say that this is the spiritual equivalent of a heart attack. It's a devastating outcome. It's the result of letting the disease fester so long that it results in a sort of spiritual death. When someone falls away from the faith, it's a clear and tragic symptom that they let their hearts become hardened. Now, we obviously don't want to wait that long for a diagnosis. We want to diagnose it earlier so we can keep our hearts from getting to that point and we can do something about it. And the next symptom helps us to do that. It's implicit in verse 8. 
Verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Those two words, rebellion and testing, are key here because they point us to the event that this is referring to. It's a reference to Exodus chapter 17. You remember that story? Israel's wandering through the wilderness. They've left Egypt. God has delivered them through the ten plagues, delivering them from slavery, leading them out of the out of slavery, out of the wilderness, into the promised land, but they're thirsty. They don't have water, and they're complaining about it. And as a result of this little episode, Moses calls this place the place of Meribah and Massa, literally rebellion and testing. Rebellion and testing. And so this ver- verse 8 is a reference to that event that this place of rebellion and testing was the place where Israel responded to what God had done for them with complaining and grumbling. That is the second symptom of a hardened heart. When our hearts grow hard, we lose sight of what God has given us, and we focus instead on what God has withheld from us. In Exodus chapter 17, think just, just a bit about what God had graciously done for His people. He had delivered them from slavery. He put his covenant love on display by rescuing them at the expense of a nation that was far more powerful and glorious than they were. He made a way through the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. But even after all that, Israel responded to the grace and kindness of God with complaining and grumbling. Now, in this text, we are told that the same can happen to us. We also can harden our hearts against the Lord and let complaining and grumbling come out of our mouths when instead it should be praise and thanksgiving and worship. Because Christ, listen, Christ has delivered us from a far greater slavery with a far greater sacrifice. If anyone has reason to rejoice in all circumstances, to give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what we are facing, no matter what is raging around the world, it is the believer, it is the Christian, redeemed by the blood of Christ, not from slavery to a political power, but from the ultimate slavery to sin. Christ has redeemed us, and our response as believers is meant to be gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise. The third symptom is the most serious. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The third symptom is unbelief. More specifically, it is a failure to trust in God's promises. It is a failure to trust in God's promises. When we think about unbelief, we we tend to think about an agnostic person or an atheist, someone who does not believe that there is a higher power, does not believe that Christ is the Savior of the world. But unbelief in Hebrews is a little bit more specific. This is once again illustrated in the story of Israel in the wilderness. Verse 13 quotes, "...the Lord swearing in His wrath that they shall not enter His rest." You remember when that happened? Rest is another word for the promised land. 
God is telling Israel that they shall not enter the promised land, at least not that generation that responded with complaint and grumbling. But more specifically, this is a reference to Numbers 13. You remember the 12 spies are sent out representing the 12 tribes of Israel from the land that God promised to Israel, and and they, they return with their report, and they report that it is a good and fruitful land. This would be a wonderful place to settle. This would be a a place flowing with milk and honey. But it was also populated by several warrior nations. Some of them had large and strong fortified cities, and they began to wail and to despair. They respond with grumbling and complaining, but this time their grumbling and complaining didn't come from a need that God seemed not to have provided. It didn't come from thirst. This time it came from unbelief. Unbelief that God was able to deliver on his promise to lead them into the land of Canaan. Ever since the times of Abraham, God had promised to give them this land. Look to the east, Abraham, and look to the west. All of this land will be yours and your descendants. This is a promise that originated right at the beginning of God's covenant with the people of Israel. But they no longer believed that God could deliver. They listened to God's word. They heard God's voice, but they did not believe it. Their hearts were hardened. The result was that that entire generation perished in the wilderness as God barred them from entering his rest. And so we see here three symptoms of a hardened heart, complaint, unbelief, and if left untreated, apostasy. But where does a hardened heart come from? What are its causes? Those are the symptoms. That's how we know that a hardened heart is present. But what causes it? This leads to our second point, the cause of a hardened heart. And it is revealed in the second half of verse 13, where the author writes, none of you may be hardened by, hardened by, here's the cause, hardened by, the deceitfulness of sin. This is the obvious but easily overlooked answer. We tend to think that a hardened heart, I mean, we, we know what a hardened heart looks like. When, when, when we see in the text this description of a hard-hearted person being characterized by a distrust in the promises of God and an increasing complaining and grumbling lifestyle, we, we know what that looks like. And we often think That, hey, what happened here was that that person has been gravely mistreated by other people, right? They've grown cynical. They've grown skeptical. Where they once began with kind of an innocent trust in God, they've lost that. But the reality is that a hardened heart is caused not by what has been done to you, but what you have done in your own sin. If you have a hardened heart, you're not primarily a victim You are primarily a perpetrator. Though the things that other people have done may have fed into your giving into the deceitfulness of sin, ultimately, the Bible teaches it is your responsibility. More specifically, it says it's the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin that causes a hardened heart. You've come to believe lies rather than to believe God's word. That is the nature of deception. To be deceived is to believe something that is not true. 
Sin is not just about doing what is wrong. Sin is also about believing what is wrong. Sin is deceitful in nature. That's what happened in the garden. Well before Adam and Eve sinned in their actions by taking the forbidden fruit, they had sinned in believing the lie that Satan knew better than God. You will not die. And they believed the lie that if they ate that fruit, they could know better than God as well. You will have wisdom. You will discern between good and evil. You will be the kings and queens that reign with ultimate authority. They believed the lie. They were deceived, and their hearts were hardened. The same is true for us. Every time we are deceived into believing one of Satan's lies, our hearts become a little more hardened. If you believe that your moral standard is more just, more righteous, more true than God's moral standard in His Word, you are believing a lie, and your heart is becoming hardened. If you believe the lie that you don't need God's Word, you don't need to read it regularly, you have enough information stored in your mind, you don't need to engage in regular devotions, you are believing a lie, and your heart is becoming hardened. If you believe that the world is more satisfying than Christ, and it leads you to reorder your priorities so that you're focused on your career or your material possessions or the kind of home that you own, you are believing a lie, and your hearts are becoming hardened. God's Word tells us, don't believe the lie. Did you know, Christian, it is your choice whether you believe the lie or not? That is, if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you don't have a choice. You are darkened in your understanding. The, the, the lies of the devil seem like truth, life-giving truth to you. In order to discern between truth and falsehood, you need to first repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will gain this capacity to discern what is true from what is false. But the Christian always has a choice. That's why the Spirit can say in verse 8, do not harden your hearts. This isn't just, hey, pray that the Spirit would keep your heart from being hardened. This is an exhortation. Do not harden your hearts. That's why verse 12 says, take care, brothers. Take care, brothers and sisters. This is an exhortation to Christians. Do not harden your hearts. You have a choice. If you, Christian, take care to guard your heart, you will not have a hardened heart. How we respond makes all the difference. Verse 14 describes the stakes here in sobering terms. It says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I mean, this is wonderful news that we sinners, created beings, can share in Christ, that the glorious riches of Christ can be shared with us by grace through faith. But, but let us not ignore the massive if 
in the middle of that verse. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ, in his glorious inheritance, in his perfect righteousness, in his atoning blood, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The stakes are high, and the warning is therefore sobering. And the author presses this home in verse 15 by reminding us that God's people, once before, many times before, but particularly on this one instance, did not keep their original confidence firm to the end. They fell away despite all that they had seen God do. Verse 16 asks, for who? Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who were the people who fell away, who didn't keep their original confidence firm to the end? Answer, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? The author is asking us, do you know what they saw, what they experienced, what they knew about God? They saw the supernatural miracles of God. They saw the Nile turn to blood. They saw the firstborn of every family die except those covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. They saw the mighty works of God and yet they still rebelled. They still refused to believe. The result was that God did not let them into his rest. He barred them from the promised land. And verse 19 summarizes all this when it says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now what is the remedy to a hardened heart? Now, we know from the basics of Christianity that the remedy to the deceitfulness of sin is to hear truth and believe it, and when we don't hear it, we, we repent and we believe afresh, right? Repentance and faith. That is, the, that, that, that is the daily medication we need to guard our hearts from a hardened heart. But our text today gives us something a little different, something that is meant to help us get to the point where we repent and believe, and this leads to our final point. This really is a crucial question about how to treat a hardened heart, because all of us will have hardened hearts at some point in our lives. And our initial instinct when we do feel that happening or when we see it happening in someone else's life is to actually treat the symptoms rather than to treat the cause, right? Someone is complaining all the time. You say, hey, just be grateful. You know, the, think about it as cup half full rather than cup half empty. Or someone is struggling to believe the promises of God, and you say, well, you just got to read your Bible. To some extent, that is merely treating the symptoms. And to only treat the symptoms and to ignore the cause is to do something extremely dangerous because it removes the signs while the condition remains and it is masked. So in order to treat the disease, we need to treat the cause. We need to treat the deceitfulness of sin that produces unbelief and complaint. And that requires something far more powerful. And yet, it is also something so simple that anyone can experience it, and everyone can find it in the life of the local church. It is found in verse 13. But 
exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's not rocket science, my friends. The remedy to a hardened heart is the exhorting of one another. It is the practice of exhorting your fellow believers and being exhorted by your fellow believers. There are many one another's in the Bible. I'm sure you've talked about them often here in this wonderful church. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another. But none of the one another's are as important as this one. Exhort one another. The word for exhort is one of the most complex words I've come across in the New Testament. The word is parakaleo. Parakaleo, it literally means to, to call to one side. To call to one side, like a father calling his son to his side for a private word. Or a person calling their friend over for a serious conversation. It can mean, on the one hand, to, to comfort and to encourage and to build up. But it can also mean to urge strongly, <clears throat> excuse me, or to make a strong request for something. It can involve both words of comfort and words of correction. Words of comfort, words of challenge, depending on what is necessary in the moment. And this is the simple but powerful remedy that God's word puts before us that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to exhort one another. And this is a responsibility that lies on each of us, not just pastors, not just ministry leaders, not just small group leaders, not just staff, but everyone. The one another's in the New Testament are for every Christian. He's writing here to the entire church, take care, not elders, take care, brothers. The Holy Spirit is saying to us today, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, we live in the great today, described in verse 7, a day when God's voice can still be heard and responded to. And as long as it is still called today, when God's voice enters into the realm of his creation and summons his created beings made in his image to repent and believe, as long as it is that day, we are to exhort one another because another day is coming. It is a day that the Bible calls the great day of the Lord. When the Lord comes to execute his judgment and the only words that he reserves for that day are words of judgment. On that day, there will be no more opportunity to repent and to believe. No more opportunity to respond to Christ with gratitude and praise. There will only be judgment. And so we exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let me ask you, how is your heart doing today? Are you aware of the current health 
of your heart. When you measure your life, your heart, to the diagnostic tools in our text today, what does it reveal? A soft heart or a hardened heart? One way to diagnose your heart is actually to ask those around you, those who know you best, what they have observed and what they have heard. Because when we try to examine ourselves, we tend to conclude that we're doing fine. We are experts at self-justification. But if you would ask those who are closest to you about whether your speech is more characterized by gratitude and praise or complaining and grumbling, what would they say? Would they say that your speech reveals that you are more aware of what God has given to you than what God has withheld from you? Another way to diagnose your heart is to go through some of the specific promises of God. Not just asking yourself, do I still believe in a generic, general sense, but to ask yourself, do I still believe this specific promise? Do you still believe that God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose? Do you believe that all of your sins, your sins, not just your neighbor's sins or your family member's sins, but your sins have been canceled at the cross? Do you believe that God is sovereign over all, including our government, including the nations of the world? These days, if I'm honest with you, some of the promises that people find the most difficult to believe are those that God has made about the church. The promises that God has made about the church. Many people say that they are Christians, but they no longer attend church because they say, I've been disappointed too many times. There's too much politics in church. I've been hurt, disappointed too much to trust the church again. But God has made promises about the church that he calls his people to believe. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul said that Christ is cleansing the church by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself blameless, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. God has promised to give the church shepherds after his own heart who will feed his people with knowledge and understanding. The question is, do you still believe those promises? Despite all that is going on in the life of the church today, people say that there is a crisis in leadership in the evangelical church. And that might be true, but God's promises still stand, and they're still worthy of our belief. The church is not perfect, not yet. But it is still, to borrow the words of Spurgeon, the dearest place on earth. Don't let your bad experiences dictate your faith. Don't harden your heart. Believe God's promises including his promises about the bride of Christ. And when you soften your heart and believe God's promises for the church once again, you will find in the church the very remedy that keeps your heart from becoming hardened in the future. 
You will find fellow believers who will comfort you and correct you when needed. You will find brothers and sisters who will point you to the cross for the cleansing of your sin and for the conviction of your sin when you need it. You will find faithful friends who will wound you so that you may be healed. If you have someone in your life like that, I encourage you today or in the days to come to approach them and give thanks for them. Express your gratitude to them. Express your gratitude for them to God. They are a precious gift from God to you for your well-being, for the goodness of your heart. And then I encourage you to invite them to continue to exhort you. Please, friend, keep speaking into my life. Show me where I have perhaps have gone astray and help me together to walk on the narrow path. And if you don't have someone in your life like that, I encourage you to begin by praying for one. Pray for a faithful friend who will wound you and heal you by pointing you to Christ. Pray that God would bring you a friend like that and pray that God would make you a friend like that, a friend who loves so much that you are willing to speak the hard word and not just the easy words. Once you have prayed, then I encourage you to go and spend time with believers in fellowship. It's a wonderful thing to gather with friends and catch up about the week, talk about how things are going at work and with your family, and talk about what's going on with the Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs, and that, those are wonderful gifts of common grace. But don't stop there. Dig deeper. Practice what we call biblical fellowship, the sharing of your life together in Christ with one another. And that takes time. That takes humility to open up your life to others. But it will be the best investment you'll ever make because it is when we exhort one another and we have churches full of people who exhort one another that we guard our hearts and hold our original confidence firm to the end that all of us may share in the glorious riches of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess, like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We feel, like Paul in Romans 7, that when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. We are aware of how easy it is for our hearts to become hardened. And for us as your people to be characterized by complaining and grumbling rather than thanksgiving and praise. But we praise you that Christ has paid it all. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that because of what he has done, all who belong to him will never be lost. No one can snatch us out of his hand. We pray as we heed these warnings to endure to the end and to guard our hearts, that we would listen with softened hearts. And that increasingly we would be the kinds of people who receive exhortation humbly and give exhortation gently. 
that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.